That's where O'Daniel comes in, you know what I mean? I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Up yours, you son of a... Hey everybody, welcome back to We Built It That Way. It is a beautiful day for an extra credit episode. I'm Jordan, and I'm joined by a very special guest who is the other person who hosts this show. <laughs> am I a guest or am I just, <laughs> you're just stuck with me from now on, I think is how it works. AJ Favre, everybody. Hello. So we're back. We're doing this again. We are going to discuss another article. And this one comes to us from The New Yorker. It's an article titled, When Cars Kill Pedestrians, and it's written by Dan Young Kim. The subheading is, A Boy's Death Launches a Movement to End Pedestrian and Cycling Fatalities in New York City and Beyond. So (laughs) we picked a real uplifting topic for this discussion, and it kind of weaves into some previous episodes of this show where we've talked about crossing the street, we've talked about traffic congestion, and we're going to be specifically dwelling on the deadly impact that cars have in our cities. Well, you know, the beginning of the article starts with a story of Sammy Cohen Eckstein, a 12-year-old in Brooklyn that was walking to soccer practice, chased a ball out in the street, and the driver of a van um, hit and killed him. And there are other stories that are mentioned throughout the article. And the way it's laid out is really powerful because you find yourself, or at least I did, reading through these stories and getting very angry and imagining yourself in the shoes of the people um, in the article and then having the realization that we're all participants in this and it could happen to any of us at any time, whether the it is losing someone, um, whether the it is being behind the wheel and hitting someone potentially fatally. It's very sobering. Yeah. They even say this explicitly in the article, which is like just about all of us are pedestrians at some point in our life. Like it's just means that you get out of the car and then (laughs) you get out of the car and you become a pedestrian. And we're all drivers. And we're all drivers as well. If we drive. So (laughs) yeah, this affects Uh everyone in, in at least one way or more. Well, yes, we will really get into that because one of the things that we'll return to in this conversation is this kind of idea of victimhood and who we consider victims and who who's like pain and suffering we identify with. And I think that it's just so clear from this whole story that everybody becomes a victim in the end. It's true, and we've said it on this show before, that we really design and only kind of think about the needs and comfort of the person driving. And like, what, what can we do to smooth out their experience? Make turns, kind of round them off so that they can be <laughs> more, more seamless. And that's true. And we really don't, we treat people on foot or on bike as an afterthought, let alone people, you know, wheelchair, for example. But it's these stories where a driver hits a person walking or biking, they are victims of the system that they have no choice but to use too. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. But it really struck me reading this that all of these people's story you know, it's a lack of collective action. It's a it's a failure, you know, of our institutions that these um, streets are so reliably and predictably 
dangerous. And then they translate to sort of like an individual burden for these families. I think it's like this in a lot of parts of society where we push the onus of dealing with our lack of thought and carefulness onto the people who it's going to affect the hardest. And then it's just like, if you want anything to change, it's really on them. It's both who will affect affect the most, who most often is also the same group as the group who is unable to speak out about it Uh effectively. Yeah. For one, a dead person can't very easily speak up for what happened. And that even comes into account here when when they talk about like police accounts of of what happened. It's usually like told through this, what do they call it? Windshield. Windshield bias. Mm -hmm. Windshield bias, which is that our, our kind of system is already designed in a way that only thinks about the car primarily as the means of of getting around. And so even like in police reports, they only ask the people driving um, and, and they seldom get the point of view of um, the person walking or cycling. And, and it will often even put the blame onto them. Right. And it's not a coincidence that those groups also, even if they survive what happens, you know, are subgroups of the population that are generally not, not heard from often. Right. That's what, They're, yeah. You know, children that, that can't advocate for themselves. They're older adults who are often, you know, pushed aside in decision making. They're people in low income neighborhoods where there's been very little investment to begin with and are therefore discounted. Yep, it's true. The whole issue of kind of putting blame on the pedestrian or the person riding a bicycle, for example, it's just kind of ingrained in our car culture. But what was interesting to me is how much this moment and, and this movement mirrors what was happening 100 plus years ago when cars were really first exploding onto the scene in cities. We talked about Peter Norton's book, uh, Fighting Traffic, which which really tells the story of the teens and 20s and how it was really kind of a shift in how we understood the street space and who, who it belonged to. And it was a concerted effort on the part of the automobile and related industries that they had to kind of go out and start shaming people for walking in the street where it was car space. But, you know, it was a costly campaign that they really had to overpower people with. And I just think it's kind of interesting that like there was 1,300 people a year in New York City alone were were getting killed, like pedestrians, which is still the highest number in a year to date. And people are saying like, this is unacceptable across the spectrum. Obviously, that view lost out. It just really struck me that now these folks are like kind of on the margins. These are fringe movements that we've really just internalized the notion that, well, death is just kind of an unfortunate side effect of progress in how we get around. Right. It's pretty much the philosophy of, you know, if you don't want to die, stay out of the street. That's not for you. Yeah. And that that's even manifested itself in the language that we use, which the story also touches on how we have conveniently taken to referring to these incidents as accidents, Uh which I've heard a lot of people debate this particular issue. I've heard a lot of people say, well, but it is accidental. No one said, I'm going to go do this thing. But what they're missing is the point that accident as as a term suggests that there is no fault. No one's to blame. Who does it let off the hook? Yeah. Right. And it, it just, well, it's unfortunate. That's just the way yeah. it, it happened. 
It is really unfortunate. And I, I really can resonate with that feeling like none of us wants to be, I think we can all imagine being in a situation where like a kid or somebody darts out across the street and you're just going normal neighborhood speeds and you hit them. Like I've never had this experience, but it's not because I'm such a good driver. Like we can all imagine that being kind of out of our control, you know? I don't think any of us wants to be called a murderer for that happening. And so it's like we have that windshield bias where we have the sympathy for the driver. And I think that's a good impulse to begin with, but we need to take it further. And we need to, again, like ask, who is that covering for? And who's not being held accountable? Well, and it also reflects our culture because there's a reason that we can all see ourselves in the shoes of the driver, but we don't see ourselves in the shoes of the pedestrian or the cyclist because most people are drivers and solely drivers at that, a large group of them. And most people at the policymaking level are going to be drivers too, right? Yep. They don't tend to come from like the subset of people who can't afford to have a car. Exactly. Usually. Oh, did we mention, I can't remember if we mentioned it, but there's a little quote in the article that I'd never heard phrased this way. And it was that we don't call airplane crashes accidents. What did you think when you read that? It really just sums it up. Like you, I read that and my immediate impulse was to say, wow, I never I never thought of it that way, but that's 100% correct. I mean, because they sometimes are accidents, like right. making a wrong decision. But usually our response is to be like, this is not an acceptable thing to happen. You shouldn't have to die just because you decided to cross the country this way. And right. you shouldn't have to die because you cross, you know, decided to cross the street on foot either. Right. We, we see the same thing with, with trains, right? Train, train wrecks or train collisions. Yeah. Yeah. We we don't call those accidents. And isn't it interesting that the one place that we use that term is the place where most of us have a personal stake. I think you can trace this back to kind of an intentional strategy again, by the, the automobile industry in the early part of the previous century and the roadway building industry, like don't want to like go around being like hyper cynical about everything, but we should be aware of power dynamics and what, where did our language come from and whose interest does it serve to kind of use obfuscating language? And that's clearly what's happening with with the word, Mm -hmm. with the word accidents. They mentioned this in the article, and I don't know if this was for just the period of the last decade or if it's longer than this, but um, it was noted that car crashes are the leading cause of death for children that doesn't seem accidental. I don't know if it if it's accidental, then we should probably be trying to do more about it. Even like our peer countries, they, they list four European countries that would be kind of like comparable countries in Europe. We have four times higher traffic deaths per kilometer traveled. So we should be at least at the very least curious, like why it happens here more than in some other places. Yeah, historically, we're, we don't have a great track record in the United States of looking at things that kill our children and having productive conversations about change. Yeah. In fact, another kind of hard hitting quote that's in the article that speaks directly to this is where they go on and say, basically, if, if you want to murder someone, do it with a car because no one ever looks at that as a weapon. Yep. And it's easy to hear that. And dismiss it out of hand 
But then if you think about that for a moment, that also speaks volumes. Yeah, it's because we tend to blame the person who died. We tend to like absolve the person who's driving because I think we, when I say we being the people kind of coming up with the, the policies and the laws, we kind of don't want to imagine it. We, want, we can imagine it happening to us and we don't want, we don't want to be held like as a murderer. Right. Well, I, I know that people may be listening to us right now and thinking, well, pretty much sounds like you guys are saying cars equal murder and therefore we need to get rid of cars and we can't all do that. So I also appreciated the fact that in the article, they go on to talk about that it doesn't have to be that way, that those Uh two terms are synonymous with one another. The way we drive, the speed that we drive, there are things that make automobile crashes not all on the same plane. Right. So there's... A number of different versions of this stat, but basically they point out here in the in the article that on average, if you're struck by a car that's going at 40 miles per hour, it's like a 50-50 chance if you survive. If the car's going 20 miles per hour, the pedestrian has more than a 90% chance of survival. This is obviously dependent on your age and, you know, how strong you are. Like this, um, crashes are always way worse for, for example, older adults who make up like, what is it, 20% of pedestrian deaths. Mm-hmm. But that's why the design, the whole like slowing the cars, not necessarily completely banning the cars, like right. makes such a big difference. Well, and the author makes the point that the victim that they opened the story with, that the mother had to ask herself, would the outcome have been different for my child if the car had simply been moving at a slower rate of speed? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. Like, this is a a terrible topic, but I don't know why they have to, like, tap into their trauma and, like, work through their public speaking skills to the point where they can withstand, basically, abuse from lawmakers when they're up making the case. Why should it be to the point where we have to bring out these people who should never have to talk about this kind of thing again? And they can only get so much support until they compromise down and, like, go halfway why is this so important that we get right. to drive so fast everywhere? I don't know. This this is the part that just blows my mind. It's really frustrating. And, you know, let's be, let's be candid. I mean, a lot of this is because of the way that we, especially in our hyper-privileged society in so many ways, frame things. You know, it's really not... It's definitely a framing issue. Yeah. A choice between can I get where I'm going quicker or the alternative is, well, I have to get up earlier in the morning to get there, for example. Yeah. That's a faulty framework to even yeah. start the conversation because what we're really saying is that framework should resemble something more like higher rate of speed. I can get where I'm going much quicker, but the people, the human beings that are in my neighborhood and along my route are much safer and will live to see another day if I drive slower. And we never really say that. Yeah. It's really more about our own convenience. So there's been action on this issue in other countries around the world going back, well, further than this, but we can point to the 1970s, the, what are they called? Stop the Kinderboard, the Stop the Child Murder Movement in Amsterdam, which 
got them to change some laws. And and then we I wanted to have us talk about something that's mentioned in this article, which is Sweden and their program called Vision Zero, which was, I think, adopted in 1997 to essentially slow down traffic and avoid deaths. The idea is that zero traffic deaths are acceptable. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I think we should. I mean, number one, let's just point out what they did that we have failed to do, which is they very clearly linked and verbalized this link Uh of mortality and speed of vehicles. Acknowledged that, talked about it, made it common language. We're very unapologetic about Uh that message. And tied that to design. Exactly. If I may add to that real quick, um, from the article, it says, at the time, Sweden already had one of the world's lowest per capita traffic death rates, but among Vision Zero's premises were that death as a cost of transportation is unacceptable, that drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians are fallible, ding, 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 and that the street design should lessen the consequences of human error. And here's some of the results. Before long, Sweden's traffic deaths were halved, again, from an already low Right. And leaders elsewhere in the world were paying attention. Were we paying attention over here? We paid attention enough to jump on the bandwagon of Vision Zero. There have been many cities that have had um, elected and appointed officials step up and say, we will join this pledge. Right. But do we feel that that's been effective? Right. Well, they don't go into too many details in this in this article. They talk about Bill de Blasio taking the Vision Zero pledge to, I don't know, cut a certain number of injuries and deaths by 2024. And they were making some pretty good progress. It said that 51 other cities have done similar pledges. They were making some progress on that. But, you know, shortly thereafter, what was it, last year? Last year it says uh, 2021 was a banner year for cycling in New York City and elsewhere, you know, pandemic. But more people died that year than the year Vision Zero was uh, was adopted. So, we're kind of seeing that like even even the way that we're approaching it here, it's, it's fizzling out. Like they started on some some design changes, but I think we're relying on some fixes that aren't going to get us all the way there. Like, for example, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the article, as you're scrolling down, it's cool. It's got these kind of cool illustrations. And one of the little things that zoomed by as you're scrolling down says lowering speed limits is paramount. That's the word they use. But design of the street matters, too. And I think I would flip that. Agreed. What do you think? Agreed. I mean, we can mess with speed limits all we want, but if the design encourages us consciously and subconsciously, more importantly, to speed, the number on the sign makes no difference. As they say here, good, good road design grasps the psychology of drivers, which is kind of like the thing behind the um, Sweden's Vision Zero. The idea that like we're fallible, we're going to make mistakes. So let's make mistakes not so costly. Right. And, you know, the article does point out that road redesign is terrifically expensive. And I I don't think we necessarily dispute that. Yeah, You know what else is costly? (laughs) Well, not only that, but what I do find maddening is we're saying, okay, we've observed the problem. We've named the problem. We've talked about the problem. We've pledged to fix the problem. But we're yeah. just focused on redesign. And yet in the meantime, we're yeah. creating new streets that repeat all of the bad mistakes of the past. We are. So yeah. we haven't even dr- drawn a line in the sand and said, no more are we going to continue to design these streets in this way. We, we yeah. just keep cranking them out. 
I had the same thought when I was reading through. It says serious street redesign is not cheap. Um, according to the budget office in New York City, the first six years of Vision Zero, they spent an average of $190 million on road redesign. Um, and the payoff was a drop in death toll. I just thought that serious street redesign is not cheap. That's true. If you're going to undertake to change all of the streets in your city, it's going to cost a lot of money. But we have to really broaden our understanding of what costs are because currently we lose, what is it, 40-something thousand people in this country to avoidable traffic death every year. That's I don't know where we are these days with the figure that we put on the value of a human life, <laughs> like in dollar terms. I would not want to be in charge of that, but I don't know that. So that's one thing. I guess we should, we just need to have a a more holistic understanding of the costs that our decisions impose socially, Mm -hmm. environmentally, and so on. Um, I think we talked about this in our COVID related episode. There's a lot you can do in the interim to make things temporarily improved with materials that are clearly not meant to stay there forever, but you can start to have an immediate impact. This is known in some places as lighter, quicker, cheaper, or tactical urbanism. But basically, start small, test things out, and and then try again. Exactly. Which is maybe the kind of thing that might also be responsive to one of the other challenges that they pointed out in this episode, in this article, which is that even like when the government decides to step in and redesign some streets to make them safer after outcry, they can sometimes just be blocked by neighbors being kind of pissed off about the, the notion and saying that they're, quote, over-engineering, what do they say? <laughs> over-engineering yeah. our behavior, which right. I think would be fun to tease apart that sentence. But like maybe if it was a little bit more of an iterative process that allowed you to, for 90 days, we're going to see what this feels like. And right. then let's gauge complaints and see if we can work through them. Well, and again, this is where I think it's very effective to make the issue very human. It's one thing for neighbors to come out in full force about something that is faceless. Yeah. It's very different to stand at a podium and defend your inconvenience as justifying the death of someone in your neighborhood. Yeah. I think all the time in our lives, in our personal lives and our sort of like social community life, we have to be thinking in terms of trade-offs because it's so easy to say, I want this and I want that. Hey, daddy, I want a golden goose. And it all seems to make sense. But for one, sometimes those don't all add up to work together. And for two, if we all said, I want this and we all got our way, is it possible that we don't like the collective outcome? Right. And, you know, this ties back to the, the term windshield bias that we talked about a little bit earlier. So that term was coined by an urban planning professor at Texas A&M University, Tara Goddard. One of the things that she said that I circled and underlined and highlighted and read 17 times was, (laughs) you know, she was talking about what we already know, right, which is that our built environment, as we've already said over and over again, necessitates us driving it anywhere. But she goes on to say, even if you don't enjoy that ride, that drive, everywhere you've got to go. It's still the best of bad options. And subconsciously, we have to justify what we're doing in order to tolerate it. And I thought that was... That's very astute. Mind blown. You know what I mean? Mind blown. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Mind blown. If you really think about that and, and break that down, we're not even saying 
that we all think that this is the best way to do things. Actually, no one is saying that. We're all saying it's terrible, but human nature, guilt, we're just trying to justify it just to keep on living life. And I thought that was a really interesting commentary on the psychology of people in cities. Yeah. You know, they tied that in in this article to this kind of oversympathizing with the driver and saying like, well, this is just how we get around. Uh, Obviously, it's kind of unfortunate that people die. I'm putting words in into the article at this point. I think it gets to this idea that that's just transportation. It doesn't you don't get to the point where you get to frame it as a series of trade offs, like slower speed of movement for the ability for kids to be kids or Right. And run into the street or <laughs> even if it's hard for you to wrap your brain around, we should let kids run after balls into the street. This article mentioned that 55 percent of at least in New York, pedestrian deaths took place at um, intersections, uh, often people crossing a crosswalk with the right of way. Right. It's another thing that you that should just probably right. be not a trade off we're willing to accept. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So even when we do the thing on foot that we are told by signage and paint and the law and police officers and TV and everything else to do, Uh you're still taking your life in your hands, essentially. Yeah. You know, we kind of talked early on about, you know, victimhood, who qualifies as a victim here. Mm -hmm. And this article, I'm not sure if we really fully delved into it or not, but talks about how many times the person who's crossing the street or who's riding a bike or whatever, they're not given the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt is given to the driver. And this article, you know, is following some some of the people who have had their lives turned upside down by having their loved one killed by a driver and how hard it is to come to terms with like not wanting to see them walk out of the courtroom without accountability or essentially punishment for what they've done. And I just can't stop thinking about what I highlighted earlier, which is that, I don't know, if you kill somebody because you ran into them with your car, your life is going to be different forever, especially if you learn the kid's name or the person's name and see this family. I don't know how, like, you were put in a position where your transportation turned into, it's a weapon that you're driving, and it unfortunately turned into a weapon at that moment. Uh, I think it's easy to get mad at like the person who's immediately in front of you and who, but we need to redirect these feelings towards like systems that generate predictable outcomes, deadly mm-hmm. outcomes by design. Well, you know, a place that has um, a, a much better safety record with their roadways than we do is uh, the Netherlands. And people tend to be like, well, that's just because it's the Netherlands and they're, they have uh, whatever, <laughs> different genes or something. And they just all were born riding bicycles. And the reality is that they had just as bad of a traffic violence problem as we did and even worse. And it was yeah. that cultural backlash that says no more that right. generated policy. The policy is what created a landscape of choices for people. Right. We don't really have any good choices. We just kind of have the one. Exactly. There's a couple things that I thought would be worth before we before we head out. One is this talk about red light cameras. Mm-hmm. You know, their impact on behavior. So they mentioned it really briefly here. They were installed and they cut um, red light running 
offenses by some, I don't know, impressive percentage. But then they were removed because people don't like being spied on, basically. Then after some outcry, they were put back in some protests. And I had some thoughts on the red light cameras, but what is your thoughts? Well, I mean, we here in Texas, this is a very timely topic because as part of the 86th legislative session, which was a nightmare for a whole host of reasons, especially for cities, House Bill 1631 essentially banned the use of of this type of traffic enforcement in Texas. So we promptly saw a removal of those statewide. I have been ticketed by a red light camera back when they were in existence. And it is true that I was extremely careful the next time I ever approached the same intersection. And I kind of have two thoughts on the red light camera thing. One is that it seems pretty clear that they do have an impact on behavior. At the same time, I wonder how many of these countries that have a much safer roadway system than us also use red light cameras. I have this idea that maybe a better way to change human behavior is to have a whole roadway system designed to encourage heads up pro-social behavior. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, the red light cameras like, you know, bollards and speed humps and many other things are, you know, a reactive Reactive, band-aid. Yes. Well, I mean, it's sort of like a more sophisticated speed limit sign, Mm -hmm. I guess. Because even in a lot of places, they don't have traffic lights. So you'd have no such thing as a red light, which we'll talk about probably in another show about how you can actually design to avoid those kinds of outsourcing your spatial awareness. Should we just run through a couple of the um, design components? We've kind of talked around design this whole time. If someone's only listening to this episode and they don't catch any other of our episode. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. What are you I can't doing? believe we think that somebody would only listen to one episode of the show. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> this article says uh, good road design grasps the psychology of drivers. And should we just like mention a couple of the ones that they... They highlight here. It's it's yeah. really only a few. One that they, they, they talk about how straight wide lanes um, encourage drivers to speed for a whole mm-hmm. host of reasons. But um, S-curves or chicanes, they force you to slow down and kind of like navigate the bends in the road. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one way you can make a residential street safer. Yeah. Then you have things like uh, curb extensions, for example, which give pedestrians more space. And they also reduce the amount of time that it takes to get across the street in the first place. And the article talks about how the longer the distance that you have to cross, the more likely that you're going to be hit as you're trying to do so. Right. So if you imagine like a street that's got parking on both sides, a curb extension is like once you're getting to the intersection, the curb bumps out, there's no longer parking there. And it's just the necessary width for the travel lanes. And they said that, what is it, something like 90% or more of pedestrians getting hit were crossing at three or at three lanes or wider. Three or more lanes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. There was um, delayed signaling where you mm-hmm. do have like stoplights where you can give pedestrians and, and people on bicycle like a head start. Here we go. There's also, I think they mentioned bollards, anything that you can do to reduce the turning radius of the person driving. If it's a wider turning radius, you can take that at a higher speed. If it's closer to a right angle, obviously, you got to slow down a lot more. And then they also touched on, for cyclists, benefit um, having protected bike lanes, which also could be a 
another episode in itself. Oh, yes, it could be. And we did a whole episode back on our previous show about bike networks. Uh, maybe we'll dust that off and do a <laughs> version over here. There's so much more than that. And we actually would love to talk about that in, in a future episode. But those are just like a tiny sprinkling. The, the last thing that they brought up that we haven't mentioned that I think was a really good point is having basically like street trees or other other things like lining the street. They kind of catch your eye as you're driving down the street. It gives you the sense that you're moving faster. Like it's sort of this illusion that if we're farther away from objects that can give us the feedback of how fast we're moving, if you're flying in a plane, you're going super fast, obviously, but you're so far from the ground, it feels like you're going really slow. And it's the same thing when we drive on a street that's pretty wide and that there's no visual obstacles, we kind of take more chances and drive faster. Yeah. It's a, it creates a sense of enclosure too. So you, you don't feel that wide open. Wow. There's absolutely nothing holding me back. Don't hold me back. Don't hold me back. We should say these are, are the kinds of things that are explicitly not usually allowed because of the very fact that they make it more cumbersome to drive and they slow you down and they're presented as safety, like safety issues. Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's safer if we don't have trees next to the street so that if you're drunk, you don't run into one type thing. Yeah. Cause that's who we're designing streets for (laughs) is drunk drivers. Yeah. And you know where you could try some of the stuff because again, we've talked about the, the big argument of this being cost prohibitive, but the article kind of wraps up by talking about some specific areas and how they've chosen to focus their efforts, which every city can do. It's not difficult to get the data to find out where are crashes happening. And guess what? There's going to be certain hotspots in your community where you're going to see a higher level of those. And that should be enough justification to explore this ability to to better mitigate that. One example they gave was Nashville. They found that 2% of their streets accounted for 60% mm-hmm. of the city's pedestrian um, injuries and fatalities. Yeah, I know having worked with metropolitan planning organizations in different cities I've worked before, you know, that information is not difficult to come by. And it's very illuminating and it's very difficult to ignore where things continue to happen time and time again, there is a problem. That's the kind of thing that makes me so mad. This is publicly available data. This is data that the professionals right. have more than enough access to. And I don't want to impugn any everybody, but like the fact that we still have predictably deadly intersections, and correct me um, if I misstate this, AJ, but like in some cases you have to show enough carnage basically enough people getting hit before they'll kind of like trigger a a redesign for that section of streets. Am I off base there? No, I mean, it depends on the, on the jurisdiction ultimately, but every jurisdiction has what they call warrants, you know, does it warrant a redesign? Does it warrant a reconfiguration? Right. You know, again, I think by humanizing the problem, it's much, much harder to say, oh, the losses of these people. Yeah. They just don't warrant us taking another look at this. Yeah. And the other thing is we already know the street design best practices, the roadway system best practices, because luckily, I don't know if it's luckily because it just means that we're lagging behind, but the blueprints already been come up with. You can predict where they're going to happen to begin with. So how frustrating that this has to be a grassroots advocacy thing, but that's where we are. 
That's where we are indeed. All right. It's time to get out of here. The final takeaway time. I'll do mine and give you a second to think about yours. That quote about over-engineering our behavior from the folks in the neighborhood who didn't like the changes. I just think we should also consider that our behavior is engineered all over the place. And we've engineered the existence of children out of our streets, for example. So and just sit with that, I guess. Very, very astute point. Thank you. Yeah, there's a great irony there that, yeah, I think you can't help but but focus on. You know, again, I, I think for me, the, the big takeaway is why the hell do we know the solution to a problem and we continue to not do that thing? That's the question. Yeah. There's so much evidence. There's so many anecdotal stories. There are so many deaths. There's not a shortage of any of these things. And so the fact that we are continuing to churn out streets that check the box of every possible design flaw that encourage this kind of behavior. I mean, it's hard for me to not say that that's criminal. It's definitely unethical. Well, the numbers, the numbers don't get any changes. You know, it's the stories that I guess ultimately start getting a wedge uh, serve as a wedge burden the burden and the the emotional toll that that puts on people that have been through these situations is it's cruel so many layers to the cruelty yeah we're still not listening Mm -hmm. no we aren't well on that cheery note what do you say we scoot on out of here (laughs) no homework on this one the homework was that you showed up and everybody did the reading assignment everybody participating here did uh it, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on social media at We Built It Pod. And it would be cool if you left a review and a rating and um, told a friend. With that, AJ, let's leave. <laughs> Stop recording. <laughs> See you guys. Bye, everyone.